Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. I just want to thank everybody that filled in while we were gone, and I know Ken did a great job teaching Ken Needham and and helping out uh, the worship team. Rudy and Ken were instrumental in that as well, and so we just thank everybody that participated in our absence. It's good to be back with you. Um, we're going, working our way through the book of Second Thessalonians, and uh, we left off last time with just an introduction to this next section of Scripture, and um, we read that, verses 6 through 10. Um, I heard there's uh, something after church today, uh, about 3.30, some, well, you know what it is? Yeah, it's about big game, so I'm just, thank goodness it's at 3.30. See, on the East Coast, it's at 12.30. So the pastor's really got to you know, speed things up, but, but we'll get you out of here in time. But just to let you know, we do have some uh, game food over there in the fellowship hall. We've got some franks and hot dogs and all kinds of stuff. So make sure you at least wake, make your way over there to grab something to uh, take home or to eat there in fellowship. Uh, we'd love to see you over there after the service. But this morning we're in Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. And I just want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we just read. It's been a couple weeks since we've been here, so verses 6 through 10, and uh, reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with a with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Father, we ask you to bless us to our hearts now and give us wisdom as we go through this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Remember last time we were together several weeks ago, we just introduced this section of Scripture and we talked about that when he's, he's dealing with the second coming of Christ here, that's the theme in Second Thessalonians here in this, in this first verse, first chapter. But the day is coming when Christ will be revealed. He says so much. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers, but share his eternal glory with his saints. Hence the title of this kind of couple messages, The Joys and Sorrows in God's Final Judgment. And we wanted to look at these three truths, the first one being the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a mighty display of power and glory. This will happen. This is not a fairy tale. This is something that is factual, even though it is a future. And it says there in verse 7, the key statement, the Lord Jesus will be revealed. He also says in verse 10, he, when he comes... And so this is what we look forward to, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, back in 1 Thessalonians, when we were going through 1 Thessalonians, Paul pointed out in chapter 4 that there was a mystery that he had to unveil to them, and it was the mystery of the rapture, the, the snatching away of the church 
all those who know Christ will be snatched off the face of the earth. The dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we who are saved will be caught up to be with them in the clouds, it says. It says in verse 16 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then it tells us what's going to happen. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, look at what it says, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord on the earth. No, it says to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And then in verse 18, he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. Notice it didn't indicate that Jesus ever came down to earth here. He comes as far as the clouds. And then we go to be with him in the air. And so it's very important to make that distinction. Because now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 here, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. I mean, we, we long for the rapture of the church, right? I mean, we, we long to be, we're going to be instantly glorified in that second, and we're going to be caught up to be with our Lord forever. So whether it's the rapture or the snatching away of the church, or whether it is even his second coming, we should be looking forward to that as believers. If you're not a believer, you might want to be concerned. <laughs> you might want to turn to the Lord. You might want to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn to the Savior, and ask him to save your soul. But the Lord Jesus, as he's called here in verse 7, where is he now? The Bible says he's where? At the right hand of God. He's been exalted. He's the sovereign Lord of the church. He's the high faithful priest for his people. He's the mediator for us there. But the day is coming when he will be, the scripture says here, revealed now, the last time we spent a little time focusing on these three words in Scripture that refer to the coming of Christ, and we talked that Paul often says he refers to the coming of the Lord, parousia in the original language. It speaks of the presence of the Lord. And when he refers to that, when he talks about the parousia of the, the Lord, the coming of the Lord, he's primarily relating it to believers. Because they're the only ones that know about the presence of the Lord. Uh, no one else can know the presence of the Lord. If you're not a believer, you don't know what it means to be, have the Lord present in your life because he's not in your life. That's why we want you to come to Christ. And so that's a common term that he uses for the return of Christ. And most of the time when he uses that term, he's referring to the coming Christ in relationship to Christians. Um, but there's also another word, appearing, or epiphania in the Greek, epiphany, that's used a couple times. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14, 2 Timothy 4, 1, uh, 4, 8, and in Titus 2, 13. It talks about the appearing of the Lord. But here, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, he's using a different word. And we've all heard it before, apocalypse, the coming apocalypse, uh, apocalypse. Lupus is the, is the word he's using here, and it, it refers of the idea of manifesting what was previously secret or what was previously hidden. Let me give you an example of the use of this word somewhere else. Turn back to Romans, Romans chapter 2, 
and look at verse 5. We'll, we'll start in verse 2. Romans 2.2, 2, to give you the kind of context of what we're reading here. Paul's writing to the church of Rome. And he says in verse 2 of Romans 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He just got done listing a whole bunch of sins. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? See, those are all character qualities of God. I mean, we should be praising the Lord for that, that he's kind, that he's forbearing, that he's patient with us. I mean, think if God wasn't patient. I mean, the moment we got saved, wow, praise the Lord. And then the moment we sinned, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're, you're a crispy critter. He doesn't do that because he's gracious to us. He's patient with us. And then it says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, when we look at our God, he is a vengeful God. He is a just God. He does carry out his judgment. But we cannot oversee, overlook his kindness because it's his kindness that draws us to repentance. Repentance simply just means a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of of direction, if you will. Before you came to Christ, you were heading in your direction. You were doing what you want to do. You were going where you want to go. Your goals were your goals. Your plans were your plans. But then you met the Savior. You repented. What does that mean? You realized that that was a dead end. (laughs) That wasn't going anywhere. And you realize, I I, I want a relationship with the God who created me. And so what did you do? Your heart changed. God transformed your heart. He gave you a new desire. You don't want to go down the road, the path of your own desire, of your own will, of your own plans any longer. And so you repent. You're going this way, and when you repent, you're turning, and you're looking to the cross. You're following Christ. You're not following your own plans, your own agenda. You have sacrificed that. And you said, God, you know far better than I do what is best for me. And so I'm going to follow your plan, God, whatever it is. And this is what he's saying here. It's that kindness that we know that God has our best interest at heart. And it's meant to lead us to repentance. But then he says in verse 5, look at this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, look at what it says, will be what? Revealed. Guess what word that is? Apocalypse. That's the word that's used for that. It's tied into God's judgment. Now this word is also used in a way that the word of God is revealed to us. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, turn a couple pages to your right well, several pages, Romans 16, and I'll show you another place where this same word, the same Greek word, apocalypsis, is, is being used, and it's not the word revealed, but it's the word revelation, Romans 16.25, Romans 16.25, we know this verse, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and then he says this, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What's that mean? That means an unveiling. 
It means something that was held in secret, but now it's being revealed. Well, go back to 2 Thessalonians, because in 2 Thessalonians, verse 7 of chapter 1, he's not talking here about Scripture. He's talking about not the written word, but the living word. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who is going to be revealed. And because he wants to emphasize the coming of Christ in relationship to non-believers, he uses this word where we get the English word apocalypse from. This word usually views the return of Christ in relationship, listen, to unbelievers, not believers. When, when, when Christ is revealed to us, we, our hearts are filled with joy. For those who do not know Christ, for those who don't have a relationship with Christ, for those who haven't experienced the forgiveness of their sin through Christ and Christ alone, this day is, is going to be an unveiling okay, but it's not going to be a good one. There's going to be a lot of sorrow. There's going to be a lot of fear associated with it. Because for unbelievers, it is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling It's an appearing of someone whom they have not known is the idea, who is hidden from them. Do you realize that the natural man cannot comprehend the things of God? You know, sometimes in our evangelism, we just get so frustrated and we say, I don't know why they just don't believe. Well, the Bible tells us they're blind. They're spiritually blind. And you can preach to them, you can share tracts with them, you can do all sorts of things. But until God opens their spiritual eyes to see their own predicament, their own sinfulness, and then his answer for that sinfulness, that they can turn to Christ and have their sins forgiven. Until God shows them that, nothing's going to happen. They may come to church. They may learn the language. They may be able to recite scripture. But if their hearts have not been transformed by the grace of God and the power of God, they're not saved. See, and that's why the Bible says that God doesn't look merely on the outward appearance of someone. He looks what? At the heart. Because that's where that transformation has to take place. You know, you can change the landscape of our society all you want. You can pass all the laws you want. You can elect all the conservative people you want. It's not going to really make any difference until God begins to transform hearts. And that only happens one heart at a time. It doesn't happen in mass. You know, we can't just take a group of people and make them Christians. It doesn't work that way. We have to depend on God to do that work in their heart. And so this word here, he's using it as an unveiling, and he primarily has in mind the coming of Jesus Christ to a world that has no idea who he is. But they will on that day. They will on that day. They don't perceive him. They don't know who he is. He will be revealed. When Jesus comes the second time, the Bible says that he will come in full, unveiled, divine glory. And you say, well, why is it called the second coming? Because he already came once, remember? The incarnation, he came as what? A little baby? And if you lived back in the time when Jesus was born, um, you know, the Bible itself in in John chapter 1 says that the world knew him not. He came to them and they knew him not. And guess what? They still don't know him. (laughs) Outside of God's direct intervention and salvation of their souls, they don't know him. 
In a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, verse 9 to 13, listen to this, the, the, the Gospel of John, the Apostle John writes this. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, here's where the hope of of God saving a, a heart, a soul. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. He gave you the right to be a child of God. Sometimes the way Christians talk, it's almost like it's their right to be a children of God. You know, it's like, no, I deserve this. No, you don't. None of us do. The Bible says we all deserve what? Hell. We deserve to be put under the eternal wrath of God forever. That's what we deserve. But God in his grace and in his love, he says, you know what? I'm going to save you out of that. I want you to come to me for salvation. I want you to look to me. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your church attendance or communion or confession or whatever else you want to throw in there for religious acts, thinking that somehow they're going to save your soul. They won't. The only thing that will save your soul in the end, the only question that God will be concerned with when you stand before him to go to heaven is what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? Who is he to you? Because there's a lot of people that are today in the church that are thinking they're going to heaven and they're thinking somehow they're going there on their own merit. I've asked people who profess to be Christians. I've asked them this. You want to know how you can know for sure if someone's a Christian or not? I really believe this without a doubt. You can't can't confuse this answer. What right do you have to go to heaven? What right do you have to go to heaven? Because depending on how people answer that question, you know, another question you could ask is, are you a good person? There is no way a Christian will answer that question affirmatively. It's not, it's not, it's it's totally anti-gospel if you do. Are you a good person? Oh yes, I'm a very good person. Wow, I can think of a myriad of pages of Scripture that tell you just the opposite. No, you're not. You're nothing but a sinner. You're you're in need of God's grace. And yet they have all the trappings of religion and they think they're a good person, but you know what? They're not headed to heaven. And then it says there in verse 13, he gave them the right to become children of God, verse 12. And then in verse 13, who were born, listen to this, not of blood... In other words, you can't be born into salvation. It doesn't matter who your mom or your dad was. Your dad could be Billy Graham, for goodness sakes. It doesn't matter. You can't get into heaven on someone else's coattails. Only Christ. And so he he says, it doesn't matter who you were born to. And then he says, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, you can't will yourself into heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? 
You can't, you can't just hunker down and say, you know what, I'm just going to do spiritual things and that'll get me. No, it's not going to work. And then lastly, he says, nor of the will of man. Which shows you very clearly that salvation is something that is in whose hands? God's hands. If we can wrap our minds around this, it can really transform not only our lives, but our church. It can transform the way we witness, the way we evangelize. Because when you understand that, you know what? It's not me that's going to close the deal to get this guy to heaven. It's God. God has to do the work. And so what does that do? That changes the whole scenario. Rather than trying to trap somebody in a corner and shove the Bible down their throat and make them pray some silly prayer that's not even scriptural and then pat them on the back and say, well, welcome to the the body of Christ. You know, you're part of the family of God now. You see this all the time. You hear it on the radio. It doesn't happen that way. God has to work in their heart. And it's not by their will. We, We firmly believe that God is the author of our salvation. We are not. And you know what? That, that gives us reprieve in so many different ways. Thank God one day when I'm in heaven that I'm not going to be regretting. I'm not going to be sorrowing over someone that I couldn't lead to the Lord. Have <laughs> you ever had that person you're just witnessing, you're praying for them, and they just don't come to the Lord? And you try and you try and you try, but it just doesn't happen. I mean, there's a theology out there that says, well, that's your fault. You're not witnessing. You're not praying enough. You're not being faithful enough. You're not. So, I mean, think if that's on your head, that people will be in hell because of you or me. I couldn't sleep at night if that were the case. And then on the other hand, to think that somehow I can go out in my flesh and, and take somebody and talk them into, into Jesus and, and lead them through a prayer and, and put a little badge on my chest saying, yep, that's one, one for the Lord today. Who's next? You know, and, and think it's all about me and my skill of being an evangelist. That's just as wrong. And so he says, not of the, the will of the flesh, not of blood, not of the will of man, but what? But of God. In other words, salvation is of God and of God alone. And so this light came, Christ came, and it says he didn't know him, they didn't receive him. And you know, he, he came when he came the first time. He was hidden when you think about it. He was truly hidden. If you grew up with Mary and Joseph and part of Bethlehem, you could have gone over to their, their house and saw the little baby, maybe in the crib. You wouldn't have said, wow, that's the Savior of the world. Look at the halo over their head. Look at how he glows. This is all stuff that we make up. This is stuff we see in paintings and pictures. You know, Jesus always has that little halo thing around his head. And I get what they're depicting, right, that he's divine and things like that. But there was nothing, nothing physically. You could have met Jesus on the face of the earth when he was doing all his miracles. There's nothing that you could look at him and go, wow, this is God. That's not how it worked. See, and, and, and that's why a lot of people didn't receive him. A lot of people didn't receive him. There was nothing in his physical appearance that would make you believe that he was a creator God who came to be the Savior. Because he came, his incarnation, 
His true glory was what? It was veiled. It was veiled. We couldn't see it. The first time he came, the reality of the fullness of who he was was hidden. John MacArthur says this about his coming. He says the, next, the second coming. He says that the next time he comes, it won't be. Uh, the next time, uh, there will be no B- B- uh, Bethlehem. There will be no stable. There will be no manger. There will be no carpenter shop. There will be no humble village. There will be no poverty, no dusty roads to walk, no sinners to attack him and grieve him, no false religious leaders to oppose him. There will be no demons who will stalk his steps, no soldiers to pound nails into his hands and no and thorns into his brow. There will be no spear run into his side. There will be no cross, not the next time. The next time he comes, it is the unveiling. There will be no humble form. There will be no servant form. There will be no human form alone, but only that glorified God-man in full blazing Shekinah presence. Think about it. When he comes back, it's going to be incredible. He's coming as our Savior, but he's also coming as God, holy. Just, and he will carry out his judgment, the Bible says. It's amazing how many people rise up in our society, even today, and claim to be Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, go on the internet, just Google it. I mean, it's crazy. And it shouldn't surprise us. In, in, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said as much in verse 33, um, or 23. Matthew 24, 23, Jesus said this, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. This is what Jesus, this came out of Jesus' own mouth. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and listen, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, it's not, but if possible, even the elect. That's how far their deception is going to go. He says in verse 25, See, I have told you beforehand, so that if you say, Look, here he is in the wilderness. Do not go out. (laughs) Or if they say, Look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. Verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, When I come back, you'll know it. And not just my children, everyone will know it, without a doubt. So much so that the whole world will know who he is and why he's here. Nobody who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be the Christ, is he unless everybody knows it is him. That's the only way we really know. And so this apocalypse, this unveiling is described here. And it's described three ways. And you see it there in your outline. It's described that Jesus simply comes from heaven. And then you see it's, he says, with his mighty angels. These are all 
prepositional phrases, and he also comes in flaming fire. So let's just look at these three this morning. And remember, this is not a description of what he does. It's a description of what he is in his appearing. All right? And so first of all, if we look at the first one there, it says the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. Obviously, the first time he came, he came from heaven, but he came through the miracle of birth, right? The virgin birth. And there was no ability to to see him moving from heaven to earth. You didn't see Jesus come down and go into Mary's womb and then come out. It, It just didn't work that way. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. The next time he comes, though, it says that he, it will be visible. You'll be able to see it. doesn't matter where you are in the world. That in and of itself will be an incredible miracle. He will come from heaven, it says. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, it tells us that the apostles, these are, they were standing on the Mount of Olives talking with the Lord, his disciples were, and uh, all of a sudden he began to ascend back to heaven. And it describes that there in verse 10, Acts 1. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ is coming back. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. He will return. Even believers do not experience now the fullness of his glorious presence. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And you say, well, I thought Jesus lived in our heart. He does. But even that is veiled. Because we're not in a glorified body yet. We can't, we can't conceive that. And 1 Peter talks about that in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not... Uh, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, there's, there's kind of a veiling to the glory of God in our lives because of our carnality, because of the body we're in, because of this sinful world. But the day is coming, the Bible says, when he will be revealed, not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. And when Paul refers to the second coming into relation of believers, he uses that word parousia. And when he refers to it coming to unbelievers, he uses the word, our English word, apocalypse. And so he says he's coming from heaven. Um, But secondly, he's not going to, it's not a solo act. (laughs) Jesus isn't returning solo. Uh, It says he will come, but on the day of the Lord, he's coming with who? What's it say there? His mighty angels, literally the angels of his power. And we, we've learned a little bit about angels. If you've had the, the uh, pleasure of coming out Wednesday nights, we were going through the book of Jude, and we talked about some of the roles that angels have played in relationship to the word of God. And uh, angels are instruments through whom uh, the son's power is, is delegated um, in his purposes. And in this, this case, um, he's, we're speaking of, of judgment, coming in judgment. But angels often appear with God in the Old Testament. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about when God appears in the Old Testament, it's known as a theophany, right? 
And someone pointed out, well, what about when Jesus appears in the Old Testament? Well, that's called, technically it's called a Christophany. Okay, so you have to kind of distinguish that. Um, technically, it's still a theophany because Jesus is God. But when God reveals himself through Christ in the Old Testament in a pre-incarnate state, we call that a Christophany. A theophany is when God reveals himself, like burning bush, whatever it might be, and a theophany or a Christophany is when Christ is revealing himself in the Old Testament before he was incarnate. But in, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, it says this, and this, this was in reference when God was giving Moses the law. And we talked about this when we, our study of Jude, but it says, the Lord came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. And, and this speaks of angels. These are, are God's representatives. In Psalm 68, verse 17, David wrote this, the chariots of God are twice 10,000. Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the, the sanctuary or in the holiness. Or in Psalm 89, verses 5 to 7, the psalmist affirms this. He says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Speaking of angels. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. So even though God is surrounded by angels continuously, he is far above them. Because they're a created being. God is not. The New Testament reveals that angels will accompany Jesus when he returns. If you look over at Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, it points that out. It says, for the Son of Man is going to come, and it says, with his angels, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Ouch. I hope you're ready for that day. He says down in Matthew 25, 30, 31, Matthew writes, Matthew 25, 31, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's Matthew 25, 31. In Matthew 24, 31, it says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Angels will not only gather the elect for, for blessing, but he will also, these angels will also be responsible to gather the unelect, those who are unbelievers, for judgment. Matthew 13, verses 41 to 42, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 49, same chapter, Matthew 13 says, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Finally, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven, he'll come from heaven He'll come with his angels, but he's also going to return. It says they're in flaming fire. Points that out. 
This is the, the fire of judgment. Sometimes the fire can refer to the presence of God, right? Like the burning bush, that was fire, that, that represented the presence of God. Or the, the cloud of fire that led them, that represented the, the presence of God. But here we're talking about fire as judgment. Like in Isaiah 66, verse 16, it says, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. See, this goes against everything that we want to believe in our hearts about our God. We, we think our God is loving. He is loving. We think he's carrying all these things, and, and we want to make all these nice, good feelings about our God. But we also cannot overlook... The idea that God will come in judgment. And on that day, he is to be feared. It says the fire, and for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. Uh, Second Peter says the same thing in the New Testament. If you think, well, that's just you know, Old Testament. No, in the New Testament it says the same thing. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, listen to this, verses 7 and 10. But by... The same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for, what's it say? Fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Talk about global warming. It's coming all right, but it has nothing to do with what they think. This, this place is going to be burned up. What we know, the heavens and the earth will be burned up. They will be judged. And we will occupy a new heaven and a new earth. And, and think about it. I mean, as, as beautiful as this place is that God created, right? Even with all the crud in it. It's still beautiful. I mean, you can go to Yosemite and look at the mountains, Tahoe, look at the snow, the lake. It's just a beautiful place. How creative. You go over to the shoreline, you look out the Pacific Ocean and the waves crack. It's amazing. You see the power of God in his creation. And, and our hearts should be like, you know, in Romans when it says we should be giving praise to the creator. There's no excuse. All you have to do is look around. But what has happened is unfortunately the culture that does not know God and doesn't want to have anything to do with God, they want to suppress the truth. So they come up with a lie of evolution. Well, God didn't create anything. It's all we just kind of evolved. And people buy into it. And so then you have a culture that doesn't even acknowledge that God exists. So they can't give him glory. But one day, all this will be burned up, all this will be resolved, dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. We used to have people come to our door and ask, do you want to sign the petition to save a tree? <laughs> Not really. You don't care about the trees? Not really. <laughs> and, and I'd wait, you know, and they'd say, well, what's wrong with you? Why not? I said, well, the word of God says... Eventually, it's all going to be burned up anyway. And they just, you know, they can run off to the next house. They don't want to talk to you after that. But it's true. 
It's true. We have to bring back the emphasis on what our priority should be. Now, I'm not saying we go out and we purposely do things to harm the, the environment or things like that. We shouldn't do that. God created this. We're, we're stewards. We're caretakers of it. But at the same time, we can't bow our knee to this creation and forget to bow the knee to the creator. And that's exactly, if you look over at Romans, I mean, Romans chapter 1, I mean, this is where we're living today, pretty much. Look at verse 18. Romans 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. I heard an illustration. What's it mean to suppress the truth? It's kind of like getting in a swimming pool with a, a, an inflated ball. And as a kid, maybe you've done this. You, know, you try to hold the ball. You try to sit on top of the ball. You're trying to suppress it. You're trying to put it under the water. Very difficult to do. But, I mean, you can do it, but it's difficult. And that's what these people, this is what this means. They suppress the truth. Something that's very evident They want to suppress it so no one sees it. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? Well, for one, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. See, and this is where they did a kind of a switch on us, right? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that there's a creator. If you came in my living room and there's a beautiful painting on the wall and you asked me, you know, where did you get that? You'd think I would be nuts if I just said, well, I don't know, it just, it just kind of grew there one day. I mean, it wasn't there, and all of a sudden, little bits and pieces of it started you know, c- c- coming together, and before we knew it, it was an c- accomplished, beautiful painting. You'd say, you're nuts. And you'd go over to the painting, and you'd say, oh, this is the guy that painted it, or this is the gal that painted it. Why can't we do that with creation? It's so, so plain for us to see. It's so plain. That's why they're without excuse. But then in verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, not in a personal sense, but they definitely knew that, well, they looked around and said, well, obviously this couldn't have just happened. It says they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him for everything that he created for them. They didn't do that. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile, it simply means, you know, it's, it's not any good. There's no good that can come out of this. Became, became futile. Their hearts were darkened. Verse 22, listen to this, claiming to be wise. Right? I mean, we just went through this whole COVID thing. Think of what you heard as we went through this. You heard all kinds of scientists saying all kinds of things. And now we know... Three-quarters of them aren't even true. But because they were a scientist, because they had a degree after their name, they called them doctor. Well, what are we supposed to do, not trust them? Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
representing mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Isn't it interesting today that you can go to jail for kicking your dog, but you can kill your unborn fetus in the wound, or even out of the wound for that matter, and nobody says anything? It's disgrace. It comes out of these darkened hearts, this futile thinking, this exchange of the glory of God for images. Verse 24, therefore, look at what happens. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. San Francisco, they're trying to pass this law that allows them to legalize basically um, the sex market, creating a, a red light district where it's okay if you go there and you're a prostitute, you won't be, and this is very real and it's happening. It's before the, I think the city council down there. And their whole claim is, well, you know, people that that make, your, make their life in the sex trade are, are humans too, and they deserve the right to have a way to make a living. So let's just legalize it. I mean, they've already done it with drugs. I mean, I don't know why we'd be surprised. Kind of follow suit. God says, I, you know what? I gave them up to the impurity of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about me, God says, a lie, and they worshipped and served. Look at what it says in verse 25. The creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. And receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind. So you go to a, from a mind of futility to a debased mind. Which is just sick. Beyond belief. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, maliciousness. These are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, I mean, can it get any clearer? Verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, listen to this, but give approval to those who practice them. You ask why God is coming from heaven with his angels in fire. To judge what is on this earth, it becomes very evident. That's exactly what it needs. Thank God, if you're a Christian here today, you will not fall under this judgment. 
that he keeps us in the palm of his hand. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin. But I have to say, woe to you if you're sitting here this morning and you're in earshot of this message and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Christ. Because outside of Christ, my friend, there is no hope for you. No hope at all. And this judgment will fall. This judgment will come. In Matthew 13, verses 40 to 42, Jesus declares this, Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ's return will basically produce two radical different results. It's kind of like in the book of Revelation 10, verses 9 to 10. The bitter and the sweet results. It says in verse 9, John writes, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach, what? Bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was bitter. See, for unbelievers, the second coming will bring bitter retribution, judgment, wrath upon their souls. For the believer, it will be incredible blessing and sweet relief. That's why we look forward to it. And so we'll talk further next week about how he will deal out this eternal punishment to unbelievers, because I think we need to take the time to understand this. We live in a culture where we're so much focused on the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, we forget that there is another side to God. And it's not a bad side, because there couldn't be a bad side to God. God is completely holy. And so when he carries out his vengeance, even though the Bible says what? We're not to carry out vengeance. What's he say? Vengeance is mine saith the Lord. Because if we carry out vengeance, guess what? It's in sin. It's with ulterior motives. It's, it's tainted by our, our sinful being. But when God carries out his vengeance, it's pure. It's holy. We can't stand at God and say, how dare you do this or how dare you do that? We can't do that because God is totally removed from us. He's completely holy in every way. And even though we may perceive something that God has allowed to happen in this, you take this earthquake, for example, over in Turkey. I mean, 20 plus thousand people, men, children, die, women, right? And you, you, you look up into the heavens and you go, why did you allow this to happen, God? Could God have prevented it? Surely. He created everything, but he didn't prevent it. So there must be a purpose behind it. And the purpose must be completely holy completely pure. Maybe if, 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 if people in that plight, in the earthquake, will realize that, wow, there's a God, and it's not the God we're worshiping. Maybe we need to, to look to the Creator God. Maybe we look to Christ. Wouldn't it be glorious if people got saved as a result of something horrible like that? 
We don't know what God's plan is, but we can't impugn the character of God by questioning his purpose or his plan. And that goes for us as well. Some here may be going through trials, through tribulations, and, you, and you're looking up into heaven, and you're going, God, I'm trying to do everything right. I'm coming to church. I'm serving. I'm doing, why does this keep happening? I don't know. But the sooner you wrap your arms around that and say, God, I don't like this position I'm in, but you know what? I know you're in charge of my life. I'm not, and I'm going to go with it. Give me the grace to get through this. Teach me what you want me to, to learn. And, and he will do that. He will, he will use that to make you more and more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So on that day when he comes back, you'll be a whole lot closer to that, that welcoming time with him, to being like your Savior than you are now. Because he's using these things in your life to make you more like Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, it's hard sometimes in our humanness to think of God as a vengeful God, as a God that's filled with wrath and even anger, righteous anger against sin, against those who would defame and, and abuse his name. But Lord, your word says that is true, and we know that it's true perfectly. It's true without sin. Even though we don't understand it sometimes, we, we have to acknowledge that that's what the Bible says. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that as believers, you would give us a renewed desire, not just to live for you each day, but to serve you. The days are shorter. Your, your coming is closer. And, Lord, we don't know when it will happen, but, Father, we pray that we will be doing everything within our ability to win every heart, every soul for Christ. Lord, we know that you have to do that work, but you give us the challenge to get the word out there, to put it in front of their faces, to, to give them a Bible, to give them a tract, to, to share our testimony with those around us who don't know you yet. That maybe you're working in their heart and we don't know it. Maybe we'll be the one that sees them come to Christ when you transform their heart and take the blinders off their eyes and they're gloriously saved. What a privilege that is to be part of that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us as believers to live lives that are filled with faith and love and grace toward those who are not yet following Christ. And yet, may our message also be filled with the truth of who you are. You're a holy God, and you can't put up with sin in any form or fashion. So that's why we need our sins needed to be forgiven by Christ, your Son. And if you're here today and you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ yet, I pray that you would do that even now. You just cry out to the Lord, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know, Father, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but Lord, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I keep on doing the same things over and I know they're wrong. And Lord, I just, I want to turn to you. Your word says that you're the, the one that we should turn to, that you went to the cross you died for my sins. You were raised on the third day. And now you stand as a, a doorway, a, a doorway to heaven for all who will come to Christ, acknowledge their sin, and turn to the Savior. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to those who have yet to believe, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, even a sinner. Save my soul. Father, we pray 
that you would bless our time across the way, bless the food of our bodies, and just our, our fellowship together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's